This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Cat lovers, welcome to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm your host, Dr. Catherine Prim, and most of you know by now that I am a veterinarian and cat lover. I'm really excited today because I have a very special guest. I have a psychologist by the name of Art Markman, and he and I are going to delve into some of the psychology of why people do certain things related to pets. And I'm going to let Dr. Markman tell you all of the things that you've always wanted to know about this quirky topic right after these messages. Hi, friends. This is Dr. Marty Becker, America's veterinarian. After a traumatic experience at the veterinary office, have you ever thought to yourself, there has to be a better way? When your veterinarian is fear-free certified, you'll find your pet's vet visit is safer, more comfortable, and actually enjoyable. Your dog will go from shaking in the lobby to pulling you into the exam room with a wagon tail, and your cat will be purring inside the carrier. To find a certified fear-free veterinarian near you, go to fearfreepets.com. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. I'm here today with Dr. Art Markman, and he is a psychologist, and we are going to look at some quirky and odd behaviors people do when it comes to pets. Welcome, Dr. Markman. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. So I wish you could tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and all the cool things that you do because you do a lot of cool things. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm a cognitive psychologist. I study the way people think. Uh, I'm interested in reasoning and decision-making and motivation. And and for the last 12 years or so, in addition to doing a lot of research that gets read by 30 of my closest colleagues around the world, I try to bring a lot of insights about cognitive psychology and cognitive science to as many people as I can. And over the years I've done that, I blog for Psychology Today and Fast Company. I write books like Smart Thinking and Smart Change. And over the last several years, I've also done a, a radio show and podcast here in Austin, Texas called Two Guys on Your Head that I do with a friend of mine named Bob Duke. And we, we just talk about any, any random topic you can think about in psychology and didn't realize you needed to ask about it. 
Well, my favorite part about you, besides all the really cool psychology, is that you are an animal lover. And I know that about you because you told me that. So talk a little bit about your interest in animals. Sure. So in addition to being a pet owner, although I hesitate to say this in front of a bunch of cat lovers, I have two beautiful mutts, two beautiful dogs who are absolutely adorable. But I also spend a lot of time in the animal community, Austin, Texas being the largest no-kill animal city in the country. And I've been a, a supporter of that. My wife is a big volunteer at one of the animal shelters. And we very much want to make sure that we are doing whatever we can to make sure that the animals who come through animal control here are well-treated and find new homes. Well, we don't hate on dog lovers. I <laughs> like dogs too, but cats are kind of a, a special, they have a special place in my heart. And I have friends that say it's because I'm Dr. Cat that I love cats, but I don't know. I was born loving all animals. So I want to look at why we love animals. What do you think it is about animals that makes us love them? So we should say up front that not everybody loves all animals. It is hard to love a spider. It doesn't mean there aren't people out there who, who don't love them, but, but spiders and snakes and some of the other things like that that from an evolutionary standpoint, may have caused us some trouble. Our animals that it can be a little bit difficult to, to find that warm spot for, you know, cockroaches and, and things like that. But I think that there are a lot of animals that we have co-evolved with and ultimately also domesticated, dogs and cats in particular, are ones that we have that special relationship with. And there's, there's a number of reasons why we love them. And some of it is appearance, of course. We, the animals that we hang out with the most are ones that, through breeding, also tend to have a lot of very juvenile features. So they, they look like younger animals. So even older cats still retain a lot of what the kittens look like. And a lot of our dogs still are less mature looking than, than the kinds of wolves that they branched off from. So we have that element. In addition to that, the animals themselves, the ones that we get along with best, tend to be ones that react to our actions and our emotions in ways that feel really appropriate. And so we actually feel as though our cats, our dogs understand us because of the nature of the actions that they take. You know, you're feeling a little down at the end of the day and suddenly there's your cat curled up on your lap purring and wanting a little bit of attention just when you needed to give something that attention. So you think the cuteness factor and then the empathy factor play a role? Yeah, and of course, the difficulty is in knowing whether it's the animal that's got empathy or whether we're projecting that empathy onto the animal. But yes, I think that both of those factors play a really big role in how much we bond with the animals. Well, I love that my animals make me not be alone. And I think a lot of people love that. There's someone there to talk to. There's someone there to interact with. It's, it's just not alone. So that's what it is for me, I think. Yeah. Oh, and, and of course, you know, there's a lot of things that, a lot of behaviors that if you are alone, those behaviors aren't appropriate to do alone. It's, it's a little weird. It feels a little weird to talk to yourself. It feels a little weird to be. And there are some things that are not just that they feel weird to do, but would be hard to do. It's hard to express love for something that isn't there. <laughs> and so you know, clearly having a, a living, breathing thing in your space not only licenses you to do things like talk out loud, but they also create these opportunities for bonding with something that would be hard to do in the absence of those animals. They also, I think it's really important in some cases, they encourage us to move. 
and yeah. get out and interact with other people and other pets. I love that about our relationship with pets. Absolutely. You know, it's easy at the end of, of a day to come home or, or for those people who don't aren't able to get out as much, it's easy to convince yourself to just stay seated all day. And one of the things we know from a lot of research is what all the health benefits are of movement. The more you get up and move, the more you get around, the healthier you are. And I think that animals are a great way to do that, to make sure that you do that, because they're unpredictable in that sense of they're going to make you get up and move around and, and interact with them. And I think that is, from a health standpoint and, and a mental health standpoint, I think extraordinarily important. People don't really realize their cats are kind of couch potatoes and people do not realize how important it is for cats to move and play and mm -hmm. how valuable that is to the cat's emotional well-being as well. So if you can use your cat as an excuse for yourself to get up and play, everybody wins, I think. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think the other thing that's wonderful is as enjoyable as it can be to just be seated next to your pet and have your cat just sitting there feeling contented and asleep. There is just something wonderful about creating your very own live cat video by having your cat interact with something in the home and, and do something that almost by definition is going to end up looking adorable. That is so true. Cat videos are mesmerizing. I watch them and love them. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, cats are, they are bred to be cute, right? I mean, they have tiny heads and big eyes. And, and so almost anything they do, almost any reaction that they have is going to be cute. They are intelligent animals, so they actually interact with things in interesting ways. But even though they're intelligent, they don't understand the world exactly the way humans understand the world, which is why we can get them to chase the laser pointer and, and things like that and, and really impose our different understanding of the world on what they're doing in ways that I think can be a lot of fun. I think it's really fun to try to figure out why my cat does some of the weird, quirky things that he does. We've had a lot of fun on this show examining why do cats do this and that? And it's it's just fun. It's valuable. Yeah, well, it gets you thinking about things. And it it's a great way to practice a little bit of empathy, too. It can sometimes be hard to understand how another person could believe what they believe and think what they think and do what they do. And sometimes that can even be frustrating. And I think one of the nice things about animals is that just, you know, spending that time wondering what they do is much less frustrating because it's primarily fun. But that practice of taking some other living thing and trying to understand why it does what it does then transfers back to your interactions with people and I think can really make you think a lot more about well, if I'm so interested in why my cat does what it does, I, maybe I'm also really interested in why the people tick the way they do as well. So basically, everybody needs a cat. I'm with you on that. Oh, yeah. I, I'd be hard-pressed to argue with you on that. Okay, so that kind of takes me to the next thing I want to pick your brain about. Do you think that there is any fact behind the crazy cat lady myth? <laughs> you know, we see what we want to see in things. Right. So as soon as you get any story about any correlation in the environment, well, then immediately you start to notice it. And so most of us know hundreds of cat lovers and maybe one crazy cat lady. But that crazy cat lady stands out because we've got a story about her. I would say that, no, it isn't the case that just because somebody goes out and gets a cat that they're running down the, a particular dangerous road. I will say, though, that pets in general 
do provide companionship for people who are who are alone. And I think that having, you know, a lot of people who have reached the stage of their life where for one reason or another, they're living by themselves, that having a pet is a, is a healthy thing. And the attachment between a pet owner and a pet at that stage of life can be extraordinarily deep. I don't think there's anything crazy about it, but I think there is certainly something important about it. Well, that kind of takes me to one of my other questions, because as a veterinarian, I certainly encounter this and, and would love to hear your insights about coping with the loss of a pet. Yeah. You know, pets become an extraordinarily important part of our lives. And what's fascinating is when they've been part of our lives for a while, it almost doesn't matter what kind of pet they are. I remember back uh, many years ago, my kids and our family, we had a, uh, we had a guinea pig. And you don't necessarily think of guinea pigs as being the kinds of animals that you would mourn for. And yet that guinea pig had been with us for four years and was just kind of a central part of the family spaces in our lives. And when it passed, it was a loss for everyone for quite a while. I think we, we bond and we, they become part of our home environment. And I think this is even more true for our cats and dogs that interact so strongly with us and, and do react to our presence. And even though cats, some cats can be notoriously solitary, they're still checking us out and they're still part of our environment all the time. And, and I think that bond, it's hard to get beyond. You have to go through that same sort of a grief process when you lose a pet that you do with the loss of any other loved one. And I think it's really dangerous for people who have lost a pet to immediately go out and get another one. I think you want to give yourself a little bit of time to mourn the loss of one before going out and, and buying another one or hopefully adopting another one. But I will say that because a lot of pets also enjoy having other animals in the house, that staggering the ages of, of some of your pets can sometimes be a bit of a blessing for people in that they don't necessarily then experience a void after a loss. I had a dear, sweet client who had two elderly pets and actually lost them with just in a few weeks of each other. And she told me, she said, I'm in the human healthcare field and my colleagues don't understand that these are my children. I do not have human children. And this loss is so real to me. And I just feel like they all think I'm crazy because I feel this loss so acutely. What would I have done well to tell her, do you think? Well, I think that it's important to bear in mind that we don't have separate mechanisms for the love that we generate for people and then the love we generate for pets. This is the same set of brain mechanisms that are involved. And, and it is the same, you know, we get the same release of oxytocin when close to a pet as we get when we're close to our human family. So, the fact that you experience that same level of loss is not surprising. That's, that is a perfectly normal thing. It's no surprise that someone who isn't a pet owner doesn't appreciate that because that's just not part of their life experience. But somebody who's going through, I think, a very deep emotional loss of a pet should not have to justify that to anybody, shouldn't have to feel bad about that but should recognize that that's actually, I think, a perfectly normal part of the grief that you experience when you lose any level. Well, that's what I told her. I told her I felt like she needed to allow herself to grieve, and it really didn't matter what the other people thought. So I hope I helped her. It sounds like you did. 
Well, so it's always very interesting. This is a question that is something I like just kind of as my hobby of following social psychology. Why do you think that people latch on to a belief that may or may not be true or have any truth to it and then not change their minds? For example, the anti-vaccination movement has kind of affected all of us in the veterinary industry that vaccines are a bad idea and nobody needs to vaccinate. When we have the medical support and knowledge that vaccines are actually a positive thing. So why do people latch on to ideas and not let them go? Yeah. You know, it's part of the problem that we have, and this is a very important question, both for pet health and human health. Part of the problem is that most of us don't have real firsthand experience that would allow us to really understand the basic work that underlies a lot of the science that allows our life to proceed as it does. So if you've been trained in medicine, then you understand the mechanisms that cause vaccines to work. And you also understand why the research that was purportedly done to show that vaccines were dangerous was actually not only not true, much of it was faked. And so if you understand that, then it's it's very easy for you to use that kind of information to guide your behavior. But for people who aren't really trained to, to think about those concepts, they're just taking somebody else's word for it. And they now have to decide, should I be taking the word of a doctor or scientist or should I be taking the word of some other individual who may also be really influential to me? And these are, you know, it's very hard then to know enough about those domains to be able to generate a real reasoned opinion about it. And so that can be very difficult for people. I think on top of that, we live in an era right now of extraordinary mistrust. You know, we have in the extremes, we have people who are preppers who really want to learn to prepare to be able to do everything for themselves because they don't necessarily trust that the social structures will be around to sustain us. I think on top of that, you know, if you look at our political world, there's a lot of mistrust of, among people from different political parties. All of that feeds back into this general mistrust of science and of medicine. And, and so in those situations, I think a lot of what we have to do is to, A, try to be trusted people in people's environments in order to help them to eventually come around to our way of thinking about things and to try to find as many well-written discussions of the relevant research that can help people to actually understand both the significant benefits of something like vaccination, as well as the reasons why they might have mistakenly believed that those vaccines were dangerous. That is excellent advice. I try to write a lot of really scientific things for people to read so they do trust me and trust the industry that we're doing the best for their pets. So thank you so much. That helps me a lot. What about the pathology of animal abuse? Because on my social media, if I share a story about a pet that was abused, it will share like wildfire. People are very interested in animal abuse and why it happens. Can you shed any light on that for us? You know, abuse of any kind is a really it is a, an underlying pathology in a lot of what goes on in society. And, and I think that one of the things that happens is people are very good at hiding abuse that may have happened to them. 
mean, I think if we look just at the proliferation of that hashtag Me Too from just a few weeks ago that was really looking at sexual harassment and sexual abuse, you realize how many people's lives have been touched by that without understanding or knowing about that. One of the things about animals is that often we're able to see things that have happened to animals that we don't necessarily see that have happened to people because animals may become part of the animal welfare system. And so those stories come to light. And I think that when we get fascinated by that, we are fascinated in part because most of us who are animal lovers can't necessarily wrap our heads around how someone would come to do that to an animal. But at the same time, it also is fascinating to us because it serves as a proxy for helping us to understand some of the other kinds of abuse that also happen in our communities that are a little bit less visible. And I think that just as animals can become part of our families in a literal sense, the abuse of those animals, I think, comes to have that same impact that we see in the abuse in our human community. Do you think that if a person is an animal abuser, they are more likely to then progress to abusing people? You know, what I would say is I'm not sure that it's necessarily a progression, right? I think it's much more that those individuals who are really capable of inflicting harm on others, some subset of them really don't feel the emotional pang that comes with doing something horrible to someone else. And that makes them as able to abuse animals as people, these things may not happen one after the other, right? I think that for most people, of course, hurting anything hurts us, right? I think that's part of what keeps most people from engaging in any kind of behavior like that, is that it's hard enough for us to see the crestfallen look on someone's face when we say something nasty to them, let alone what would happen if we did something to them physically. And so I certainly think that there is a bit of psychopathy and sociopathy that goes along with with some of this kind of abuse. You know, I also think that there are people in this world who feel utterly powerless over their world for a variety of reasons. And, and unfortunately, one way that some people choose to regain a sense of power and control is by trying to control something in their lives that is less powerful than they are. And certainly the animals that rely on us for their lives because they live in our homes are one of those things that someone could choose to exert some power over. And, and that is unfortunate and, and shocking to those of us who can't ever imagine doing something like that. So you think it's it's just the helplessness and the con- it's more of a control thing? I think it you know that's certainly one of the other things that can that, that is one of the things that plays a role. You know, I think even for those people who would ordinarily feel some empathy towards the animals, it is a way of asserting some amount of control over that environment in a world that feels utterly out of someone's control. That's really heartbreaking on both fronts, yeah. I think. Yeah. No, I th- I think that's right and you know, it's obviously not something that we want to condone, but I, I do think that we do need to understand that there are a lot of people in the world who engage in behaviors that we justifiably say are horrible behaviors, who are also undergoing 
circumstances and living in circumstances that are themselves really terrible situations. And that in addition to the need and the urge to punish those individuals, finding ways to help them to move beyond and find better ways to deal with uh, difficult circumstances is also really important. I agree completely. So terrible things and terrible circumstances, rather. What about another kind of odd thing that has been in the news a little bit? Animal hoarding. Do you have an, an opinion or a thought on animal hoarding? Well, so animal hoarding, you know, appears to be just a variant of hoarding in general, right? And hoarding behavior, which is often done as a, a way of trying to deal with extreme anxiety, you know, if you think about obsessions in general, you know, a lot of times we, we see things like obsessive compulsive disorders in which people will wash their hands repeatedly or lock, check the door locks over and over. All of those behaviors, hoarding included, are ways of trying to keep a general anxiety at bay. And so the idea is if I continue to surround myself with living things, then I will live on. I can stave off my fear of death. I can stave off my fear that things are going to go wrong because I am living in this environment with all of this other life around me or other stuff around me. I mean, for those people who are hoarding things. And so it is not a, a good way of dealing with anxiety, but it is a way that often provides some stability. But the reason that the hoarding continues is because it's not enough just to have a pet, right? You need to keep doing things that will stave that anxiety off. And so now you end up with, with many, many pets and ultimately many more than you can actually take care of that are healthy for you or anyone else. And so, you know, it's really important when you see someone in, engaged in this kind of hoarding behavior that you, that you try to encourage them and direct them towards a little bit of counseling that might help them to deal with the underlying problem. Because it's not something that's likely to just go away because you tell people not to do that anymore. The cases that I have seen have been kind of challenging because I felt like the human being involved did not realize that having that many animals meant that they could not care for them all to a minimum standard, that they couldn't see that the animals were suffering. Yeah. Well, of course, they're doing this for a very different reason. Most of us who get pets are doing this because of the joy of sharing this companionship and the joy of taking on the care of an animal. And when you're getting these pets, not for that joy, but rather because it's, it's filling a need to help stave off this anxiety, then you're not really even thinking clearly and carefully about the welfare of the animals. It's, it's not even what their function was in your mental world. Also kind of sad, but my pets make me happy. There are only a few of them, but they make me happy. And I definitely want to circle back to the joys of having a pet and not just drown in the mental illness that can be associated with pets. Sure. But I'm so thrilled to have you here with me today to answer some of these questions and delve into the intricacies of the human mind when it comes to animals. And I want to make sure that all of my listeners know how to find you. Can you tell us again about your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I can be found all over the place. The podcast is called Two Guys on Your Head, and that's on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else that you can find your podcasts. I have a, a website of my own called smartthinkingbook.com, 
where you can find some blog entries and information about the various books that I've written. And you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all those other social media sites. I always love to hear from people and and find out their stories. Well, I definitely follow you. So if my listeners are following me, then you can look in my pages that I follow and you can find Dr. Martin as well. So I guess that about wraps us up for this episode of Nine Lives with Dr. Cat. Of course, I want to thank Dr. Markman and also our producer, Mark Winter. And I just hope that all of the cat lovers out there have a perfect day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.